Luke 17. I'm going to read the passage, and as I've already prayed, uh, dear church family, uh, our spirit is, Lord, speak to me. So just be breathing that prayer as I, as, I, uh, as I read. Lord, speak to me. Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The word of God. Please be seated. Church, there are five movements, five, a kind of a collection of five different challenges to us in this passage. Maybe you noticed, wasn't just one thing, but really a kind of collection of five things. We're going to talk about uh, uh, causing others to sin, very strong warning. And then we're going to talk about confronting others who sin against us. And then about forgiving others who sin against us. And then with all that, increase our faith, having greater faith. And then finally, wrapping up all five of them, obey the Lord. Because your servants obey the Lord. In fact, we could wrap up the entire passage in a single line if we said, uh, as servants of the Lord, your duty is to obey. Your duty as a servant is to obey the Lord. Whether or not that's with the confronting sin, causing sin, increasing faith, forgiving sin, or anything else, your duty as servants is to obey the Lord. Let's unpack these one by one, including that uh, striking first warning passage where Jesus said that temptations to sin come. That's what he says in verse 1. Temptations to sin are sure to come, so they will come. But he says, woe to you through whom they come. Woe to you. And he said, if it would be better if a, uh, for you, if a millstone were hung around your neck. A millstone, you go to Israel today, you see these big stones, big stones. You know, a millstone hung around your neck, it had to be hung by a chain. Rope wouldn't hold it. I mean, just uh, it would be better to have that happen to you than to cause one of these little ones uh, to stumble into sin, to, to, to live into sin. Little ones. That term, our first thought is children, like these little kids up here, isn't it? And that's a valid part of it. But the term was more general. The Greek term behind it really referred to any disadvantaged, weak, vulnerable, outcast, poor, needy, hurting, lame, but certainly also including children, maybe children above all. Uh, and certainly you see elsewhere in the Gospels. 
the heart of Jesus towards children. Many of you have got children. Let me just pause a second. Um, we've got a, a children's ministry team here. I think we're going to put them up on the screen who are doing just a tremendous job. That's our team, Jeff Miller and his uh, team there. And uh, many, many of you uh, serve in one way or the other in our children's ministries. Now, if you ever serve in our children's ministry, would you stand and remain standing so we can say thank you for your heart for loving children. Stand and remain standing. Could you give them a big hand for all that they're doing? Thank you. Thank you. Could not do it without you. We are very grateful. Especially love to see you men out there, but you women too. Um, by the way, uh, we're asking for sign-ups this summer, and we've already filled up June, so thank you so much for responding. This reflects the heart of God to care for these precious children who are malleable, who are uh, wet cement, who, uh, who are open to the heart of God. And Jesus is warning to us for these little children and for all others who are disadvantaged in some way and for all others in general, do not cause others to sin. And then he says to underscore it in the top of verse 3, first of verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. You know, kind of adding an underscore, an italics. You know, this is very important to me. Pay attention to yourselves. Church, let me ask you, how can you and I, how can any of us cause someone to sin or cause someone to stumble or lead someone to sin? I can think of several ways. First basic way is you can encourage it verbally. You know, if you're encouraging someone that, you know, uh, that, uh, you know that's okay, that sin's not that big a deal, just go ahead, you know. Uh, it could be in any area. You know, to me, a classic way that you would lead someone to sin, man, to lead a teenager or even a, anybody into drugs or alcohol, into an addiction or any other kind of addiction, I mean, that'd be sort of a classic way. But this is a true of gossip, of anger, of pride, of theft, you know, stealing money from the government or whatever, any and every sin. Be careful that you don't encourage sin. But you know, there's a bigger way than verbally encouraging it, and that is encouraging it by our own lives, by our example. It's the power of example. You know, parenting, the main thing is example. It's example, example, example. Kind of like real estate, location, location, location. And that is true in general in the spiritual life. If you want to not lead others into sin, well, you obey the Lord. Your children are watching you. Your neighbors are watching you. Your, your uh, people all around you are watching you. Live fully surrendered lives to Jesus. Be a disciple. Don't want to just make disciples. You want to be disciples. That's the main thing to do. Live all out for Jesus. Nobody here is perfect, but we can be fully surrendered. So the first challenge that Jesus says, be very vigilant about causing others to sin. Now, with that uh, note about causing others to sin, he then talks about those who sin against you. And you see that in verse 3? When he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. It will become clear. He is talking about those who sin against you, not just those who sin against general. He's not just saying, if Leith Camden over there goes out sinning somewhere, that you see late, that you go run and tell him about it. If you have a good relationship, and it depends on the dynamics, you might. But if Leith comes against you in some way, maybe he lies about you, maybe he uh, betrays you in some way, Leith would never do that. But if he did, uh, here's the charge, go to him. Let me tell you, you don't want to go to him, do you? 
We don't like confronting. We don't like challenging. We just, we don't obey this commandment. And the whole point of this passage is to obey the Lord. When someone wrongs you, the word of God, your master in heaven says, go to him and rebuke him. What does it mean, go and rebuke him? It does not mean go and rail against Lee. Doesn't mean that. Other passages in the New Testament would, 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 would elaborate this. Go gently. Go in humility. Go recognizing that you mess up too. It's not just that you've been hurt. We hurt each other. We're humans. Joe, go just to him first. Don't go with a posse or go with a tribe. Don't go to Bob over here and, and get him to commiserate with you about late. Friends, that is just sheer gossip and sin. And let's just stop it. Let's make our church a gossip-free zone. Let's go lovingly and gently, recognizing that we got all kind of flaws ourselves, and just, Laith, you know, I feel hurt when this happens. Um, and, and hopefully Laith will apologize. Okay, what's God saying? If your brother sins against you, confront him, challenge him, admonish him. Go gently, but go. Um, church, can I bear in here? The world's way, Satan's way, is that when these things come up, and they always come up in relationship, is relationships fracture. Uh, that is not God's way. God's way is to do the hard work of reconciliation, confronting, and as we're going to see, forgiveness. Go to him. Go to him. I'm not saying that every little thing you go to them. Proverbs 19.10 says, It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Uh, if it's real small, just overlook it. You don't even need to forgive it. Just overlook it. But you know if it's bigger and it's bothering you and it's eating at your stomach, go to them. Go to them. Not somebody else. Go to them. All right? That's the second one. Third point, uh, forgive that person. Okay, you see that in verse 3? If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, if he turns from that, if he um, you know, comes to you or you go to him and he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, we, we would be a little too, uh, we, we would think we would be a little too uh, shrewd about that. I mean, that man, you know, seven times we'd just be thinking ourselves, well, clearly, he ain't repented. Jesus doesn't tell us to be the judge of whether or not he's repented. He says, forgive him, forgive him. Become seven times, forgive him, forgive him. Doesn't mean you're going to trust him. Doesn't mean you're going to be best friends with him again. It depends on what it is, what the issues are. But forgive them. Release the sin. Release the offense. It's a choice. It's a choice. Lord, I'm choosing to obey you and to forgive him. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, he says, if he repents. What if he doesn't repent? Well, the rest of the New Testament says, forgive him. I'm not sure why this passage says, if he repents. Uh, maybe he's just underscoring it. Maybe he's underscoring that if he comes to you and, and verbalizes, that you ought to verbalize. He verbalizes, you know, I, I repent, you verbalize, I'm forgiven. I'm not sure. What I do know is that all the Bible... Certainly all the New Testament, certainly the teachings of Jesus. Emphasize, if somebody sins against you, whether or not they repent, you forgive them. Maybe it's all the more if they repent. 
Be kind to one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Church, because I love you, I need to, I need to get your attention at this point, because this is one of Satan's biggest ways to destroy your soul and to destroy families with unforgiveness, because we are such fragile creatures that when our heart is ripped out, we just about can't get over it. And we hang on in our pride and self-righteousness to that anger with all we got. And it destroys us and it destroys families. Church, there is nothing hardly bigger in the spiritual life, a bigger enemy than right here. Forgive the person. Take the knife out of your back. Somebody put a knife in your back. Well, here you are, as long as you hold on to forgiveness, you're just twisting it around and moving it around and hurting yourself more. Pull it out. Pull it out. Give it to God. Give it to God. God, you have forgiven me for $10 billion trillion worth of sin. Lord, I'm choosing to forgive this $1,000 sin right here. That's Matthew 18's parable. I'm choosing to forgive this million-dollar sin right here. Church. I hope your heart was broken as mine was when you read about what happened in Charleston, South Carolina, the racism that still persists in our country, and we're not post-racist yet. But we want to be that way. That is the way God in Christ is calling us. But the way those families responded by extending forgiveness, boy, that honored the Lord. And if they can forgive that someone killed a daughter or a father or a loved one, you can forgive that parent. You can forgive that person that betrayed you. You can. You can set that person free. And when you do it, you set yourself free. It's God's way. We've got healing prayer around here. It's really so much about forgiveness, freedom prayer, healing prayer, inner healing. Maybe you need more time to work through. We've got some great lay counseling ministries around here. Let us help you if you need to press into it more. We can refer you to professional. We've got tremendous professional counselors that we can refer you to. Get help if you need help. But friends, obey the Lord. Choose to forgive. Doesn't mean you don't feel hurt. It simply means you make the choice, Lord, I'm giving that to you. I'm choosing to forgive. All right, we forgive them. Forgive them. All righty. Now, Jesus' disciples are listening to this. Man, millstone thing about causing sin, going to confront sin, forgiving sin, even seven times. And apparently they're thinking, boy, this is bigger than me. This is tough. And so what do they say in verse 5? They say, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, I need more faith. If I'm going to do all this, I need more faith. Increase our faith. You know, that's a prayer that uh, I resonate with. Probably you resonate with. You know, I feel like I need more faith. Maybe that's been a prayer. Try to stop spitting up here. We'll carry it away. Um. But Jesus has an interesting twist on it. He basically is going to say, you don't need more faith. Watch him. Watch him. This is verse 6. Increase our faith. And then he responds, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed. Now, in that day, the mustard seed had the smallest seed of all. So what's he saying? He's saying, man, if you had microscopic faith, if you had even the smallest faith, you could say to that mulberry tree over there, which had these tenacious roots that the rabbis said would last a 600 years. 600 years, that's three times as long as this country has existed. Such tenacious roots. You could even say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted, be planted into the sea, and it would obey you. 
What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you don't need more faith. Use the faith you've got, however much it is. However little or however big it is, it's faith in God. What he's saying is tantamount to this. You don't need great faith in God. You need faith in a great God. You need to focus not so much on the size of your faith, but on the size of your God. Imagine this. You're at Yosemite this summer, my favorite place in the globe. You're at Yosemite this summer. You're getting too close to the edge. My wife is dying if you're getting too close to the edge. Um, she's not liking it. Um, and, and you begin slipping. You begin falling. There is a bush there hanging on the side of that cliff. You reach out and grab that bush. Now, let's just pause it. Time out right there. You're watching that scene. Do you need great faith in that bush to be saved? No. You need a great bush to save you. You just need enough faith to reach out, don't you? You may have all kind of doubts if this bush is going to hold you. But if you've got enough faith to reach out, that's fine if it will hold you up. It's not your great faith. It's the object of your faith. John Ortberg, pastor in Menlo Park, California, put it this way. He says, never try to have more faith. That ought to make some of you feel good, relax. Okay, I can do that part. Just get to know God better because God is faithful. The better you know him, the more you will trust him. The way to get to know his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, is to risk obeying him. And he goes on and talks about that passage in Mark's gospel. You remember that one where... The father comes to Jesus and says, if you can, heal my son. Remember what Jesus says? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the guy says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Remember that one? I love that prayer because that's where I live. I live between belief and unbelief, a mixture. And that's probably where you live, a mixture of faith and doubt. Nobody here has got perfect faith. But he says, Jesus, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Jesus honored that prayer. He healed that son. He'll honor your prayer. You don't have to have great faith, but you need faith in a great God. That man simply needed enough faith in Jesus to come and pray. Friend, every time you, you pray to God, you've got some faith. You've got at least enough faith to pray. Trust the Lord. Come to him. Call out to him. Have enough faith. Focus not on your faith. Every time you focus on yourself, you know, you just, you know, kind of you lose the whole point. Don't focus on yourself and how much faith you got. Focus on your God. Focus on your God. Yeah. Boy, a good, good, good father. Focusing. That's one of the key things about worship is focusing on the Father, focusing on the, on the Savior, focusing on the Spirit. All right, increase our faith. And finally, one more. In verse 7, the last part is just one charge. Will any of you who has a servant plowing, keeping sheep, say to him when he is coming out of the field, come at once and recline at the table? You don't say to a servant in the agricultural society in the Middle East who's been working all day to come in, hey, you, you sit down here and I'll serve you. It just isn't done. Not how it's done. Servant serves the owner, the master. And then after that, the servant eats. And then Jesus makes the point, verse 9, verse 10. In the same way, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. Now, I recognize that this uh, 
imagery Jesus gives is, is not where we live. I mean, I don't have a servant come in after the day and, you know, feeding me and that kind of thing, and neither do you. But uh, let's just give a modern-day example. You're at the Holiday Inn this weekend, and you've got a couple of days there, and the next morning after staying one night, you're getting ready, about to leave, and the cleaning person comes in. What if the cleaning person comes in, looks around, and, and just plops down on your bed and says, you know, I'm tired. I think I'm going to take a nap. Would you get up and clean this, ha- this room for me? You know, it's just not done. It's just not the way it's done. It's done. So it would be something like that in that day. Just, you know, wouldn't fit. So what would the servant do? He would just serve. Wouldn't need any special accolades. Uh, at the end of that, he would just, uh, uh, just, just doing our duty, just doing our duty. Church, what is Jesus saying to us? He's saying, you're my servant. You're my servant. You're a blood-bought servant of the living God. And it is your duty to obey the Lord, to serve the Lord, whatever he commands you. Whether or not it's the commands we've already seen, causing sin, confronting sin, even that hard one, forgiving sin, that can be tough, uh, living by faith, putting your faith in the great God, uh, obeying the Lord, anything else. Maybe, maybe it involves uh, uh, some other area of your life. Maybe this morning God has been speaking to you today, lately, some area of financial honesty. Maybe about gossip. Maybe just as I started talking about gossip this morning, uh, you, you just felt, mm, that's not so good for me. Not so good for me either. I don't know if very many people it is very good for. Maybe uh, it involves just telling the truth, being honest. Maybe it involves sexual sin. Maybe it involves pornography. Maybe it involves loving your spouse. Maybe it involves respecting your husband. Maybe children here, it, it involves obeying your parents with a good heart. I don't know. But this is what God says. You're not the master. You're the servant. Servants obey. It's your duty. Nothing heroic here. Nothing special. It is our duty to obey the Lord. To obey the Lord. What is God calling you to obey as his servant? You may call yourself a servant, but if you're not obeying, you're not a servant. Kind of like disciples. You may call yourself a disciple of Christ, but if you're not obeying, you're not a disciple. There was a man, David Brooks is his name, an author, who was writing about World War II. And this is what he was writing about. He was writing about how in the aftermath of World War II that the soldiers invariably said, we're just doing our duty. They had an attitude of humility about them. They didn't need to be congratulating. They didn't prance around. They just had an attitude of humility. We were just doing our duty. Some of you have got fathers, grandfathers. Maybe some of you fought in World War II, but probably not. But you, you, you can relate to that. you got fathers, grandfathers who did that way, and that's their heart and attitude. David Brooks says he was writing about this and, 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 and thinking about how they didn't congratulate themselves. They were just doing their duty. And he finished writing, and he went in to turn on the TV, and there was an NFL football game on. And there was a short pass thrown, and the defensive player tackled the guy for only a two-yard loss. No, a two-yard gain. And he says, after that, the guy just was strutting around and congratulating himself, you know, just carrying on. And he said he was struck. Man, that guy celebrated more for a two-yard tackle than all of World War II soldiers did for the war. You know, this isn't right. Uh, You know, nothing special for just doing your duty. Church, we are much-loved children 
of the living God. We are adopted sons and daughters, but we are also his servants, his slaves, and we obey him. And it is our privilege to obey. Now contrast to the NFL player, self-congratulating dance, um, here's Stephen Curry. You sports fans here, uh, you know Ste Stephen Curry, thank you. Uh, Stephen Curry, uh, his team won the NBA championship this past week. And during the regular season, he was the MVP. He looks diminutive compared to these other guys, but he's 6'3 or 4. But he, he was the best player in the league this year. And he was selected and awarded two or three weeks ago the MVP, most valuable player. This is what he said in the aftermath uh, when he received the award. This is a tremendous honor. First and foremost, I have to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for blessing me with the talents to play this game, with the family to support me day in and day out. I am his humble servant. And this is on national television. I am his humble servant right now, and I just can't say it enough how important my faith is for me, how I play the game, and who I am. I'm just thankful for where I am. And then he goes on for the next 10 minutes, often with tears, thanking everybody in their aunt, including the equipment manager. And then he concludes, I want to use this opportunity to shed light on who I am and what drives me to play the way I do. I do a little sign on the court every time I make a shot or make a good pass. I pound my chest and point to the sky that symbolizes I have a heart for God. I do it every time I step on the floor as a reminder of who I'm playing for. People should know who I represent and why I am who I am, and that's because of my Lord and Savior. I can't say it enough. Church, that's the spirit of a servant of Jesus Christ. I have given up my rights. I've laid aside my will. I'm no longer living for my dreams, my agendas, my purposes. I'm no longer chasing the American dream. I'm chasing God's dream. Because God loved me so much, he sent a Savior who is his own son, the eternal son of God, to die on a bloody cross and wipe out my sin. It is my privilege, my privilege to obey him and serve him and love him. And if I had a thousand lives to live, it would be too few to live for Jesus Christ. Friends, do it because of a bloodstained cross. Do it because Jesus Christ is coming again and we don't know when it could be any time. Do it because you've got the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in you. And don't give that lame, wimpy excuse, oh, I just can't do that one. That's just too big for me. That is a lie straight from the enemy. You're struggling with pornography. You say, I can't get victory over that. That is a lie of Satan to keep you in bondage. The truth of God is you've got the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in you. You're a new man, a new woman, and yes, you can obey the Lord in any area that he calls you. As Martin Luther put it, wrapping up the cross, the coming, the resurrection, he said, live your life as if Jesus died yesterday. And as if he rose this morning. And as if he was coming back tomorrow. And let's obey the Lord. Church, what's he speaking to you about this morning? Where is he calling you to obey? Please stand with me. And just continue in that attitude of prayer, asking him, Lord, what are you calling me to obey? Remember, we're doers, not hearers around here. We want to do the, do the word of God. So just ask him, Lord God, 
What in my life are you calling me to obey this morning? Lord, thank you for this dear church, these dear people. Bless us, bless us. Bless us to obey you as servants. Lord, it's our privilege. Friend, if you're here in the room and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, here is your step of obedience. Trust the Lord as your Savior. Receive his grace. Humble yourself and acknowledge that you've sinned against him. And trust the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Just right now, breathe a prayer. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. He'll do it. Lord God, we worship you. We worship you. We bless you.